America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with Tho Bishop. I am the content manager at the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org is our site where you can find more content like what you're going to get for the next hour here on Money Talk 1010. Uh, Always a pleasure to be joining you on Thursday mornings here on this great station. Uh, Last few weeks, a lot of attention has been placed on the the debt ceiling debates and the uh, uh, congressional back and forth on those issues. But now it's time to turn our attention back to the Federal Reserve, which had a big announcement yesterday where they, uh, for the first time this year, um, did not raise interest rates. They took a month pause on the rise, uh, but made a a clear signal through some of their communications tools. Uh, One of the the more important ones is their, their dot plot. Uh, where you have various members of the the FOMC uh, make their own estimate about where interest rates will fall at the end of the year. And what we have seen is that the the dot plot aggressiveness going forward uh, is is rising, even though rates stayed flat uh, in June. Um, Some of the reasons for this is the dynamic that the Fed is facing where the very aggressive tightening policies that we've seen from the Fed, the fallout from that has really yet to fully be baked in. There's a lagging dynamic there. Um, And yet inflation is still very high. Uh, There is a a big propaganda push out there and a very amusing column uh, this week from Paul Krugman trying to downplay the issue of inflation and one of the points of data that he identified for this was a, uh, a, a measure of inflation that did not take into account little things like food and housing and gas and things like that. So as long as you're not using any of those things, an inflation, an inflation dynamic in this country is not looking too, too bad. Uh, unfortunately, these are the things that average Americans use on a daily basis. Uh, but this is a lot of what... Uh, <laughs> A lot of what goes on in trying to aggregate these these various uh, statistical data points uh, to to come up with a uh, a justification for whatever your pre-existing desires are, um, which you know all of this is kind of fueling, I think, the the sort of dynamic of uh, of economic denialism within our um, political environment. Right where, if if it seems to be the main job of very serious economists to try to convince people that what is in front of their eyes is not really uh, what is in front of them, then you're going to have a breakdown in faith of the discipline. Um, where comes to mind a quote from Louis von Mises, the economist that the Mises Institute is named after. There is a direct connection there. Um, Here's a wonderful quote uh, in his book, Human Action. A a judicious housewife knows much more about price changes as far as they affect her own household than statistical averages can tell. 
you know, that good old fashioned uh, common sense often trumps uh, the, the professional economic class. Now, some of the uh, further points that uh, Chairman Powell made were uh, you know, positive outlooks in terms of the labor market, uh, jobs numbers, which there are some interesting diversions there in terms of different measures, uh, in terms of uh, uh, unemployment rates and things like that. Um, and I think this is also, I have a buddy with the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we were talking about this recently, and I think this, this is another aspect where you're seeing sort of a lagging indicator here where you know, we've seen massive, massive job cuts um, you know, within the tech sector, within a, 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 view, a variety of, of specific niches within the economies, those, those industries in particular that um, are in some ways more sensitive to rate hikes than others. You think about the amount of, of, um, of debt that are in a lot of these you know, tech companies that have never been profitable over the last decade or so. And if you look at the list of, you know, what we might call zombie companies, I mean, some of them are, are names that are, are national names, you know, things like uh, Uber and the like, um, you know, but when you see Facebook and uh, Amazon and, and uh, Twitter and the like, you know, you know, firing thousands and thousands of employees, they don't immediately necessarily go off the books of the employed. Um, you know, you have severance packages, which delay, you know, where, where you have money still going to those employees in the short term, not the long term. And all of these play a role in some of these statistical measures. Um, the other side of it, though, is the continued strength of, of consumer demand out there. And this kind of raises a, one of the, the more difficult specters out there. And that's uh, credit card debt levels in the country right now. Um, you know, we are seeing record highs uh, on, on credit card levels throughout this country. And again, if you are an American that is facing both higher prices every time you go to the store and also just the, the, the issues, and particularly in a state like Florida with the affordability uh, issues that we have, you know, Tampa being, you know, one of the, the hottest uh, markets in terms of housing costs. Um, if your salary is not catching up there, then that is inevitably going to lead to a lot of residents you know, relying more and more on credit cards to do that. And when you have interest rates continuing to go up, the payments on those cards go up with it. And this is this very difficult dynamic that the Fed finds itself in. You know, we have had a decade plus of a financial environment that is subsidized or incentivized um, debt, debt for government, debt on private households, debt for companies. And the remedy to the inflationary dynamic requires increasing the cost of that debt going forward. It's a very difficult um, situation. And again, the Fed is signaling that we're going to need more in order to get inflation down. That, that, is, that is the appropriate dynamic there in order to clear out, again, a lot of these malinvestments within the economy. Um, you know, that pain is a necessary part of that correction. And unfortunately, this goes to the overarching dynamic and, and point that uh, we're trying to make here on good money is that the politicalization of the economy drives the political dysfunction that we see all around us within the Washington arena and into the decisions uh, that the rest of us have to deal with in our day-to-day -day lives. 
Now, while the Fed is projecting a very strong uh, look in terms of, uh, you know, there, there's still growth out there, we're not in a recession, yada, yada. Uh, our friends in Europe, which uh, saw a, a, a interest rate hike this week um, with some projections for more, um, they are already in uh, a technical recession over there. And the, the EU has, again, having followed the Fed's line, has had their own issues there. And so that's, that's this other dynamic where the global aspect of this is not any better than the U.S. On some side, uh, to some extent, that is what um, allows the Fed some flexibility given the, the global dynamic of this. If, if the Fed was acting alone, if the Fed was an outlier relative to the rest of the world, then some of the consequences there would be different. Uh, but the rest of the world has largely adapted uh, the same sort of flawed economic thinking that has fueled uh, our policy mistakes of the past. And therefore, um, you know, in many ways, you know, we continue to be the, uh, you know, one of the better looking dirty shirts in the laundry. Uh, but of course, again, that the, the, we saw uh, this this week as well, uh, Janet Yellen warning that de-dollarization is a, a very real threat that the Treasury is looking at, and that is not because of the underlying economic dynamics, um, but because of, again, the politicalization of the dollar internationally as a means of foreign policy. So we have a lot of interesting, very interesting uh, uh, points in the fire here from the money side of things. We're going to be joined on the other side of this break by Peter St. Ange, a good friend of the show. Stay tuned through the break here on Money Talk 1010, Good Money with Tho Bishop. Welcome back to Good Money. I'm your host, Tho Bishop, content manager with the Mises Institute. And if you want more content like you get here every Thursday morning here on Money Talk 1010, I've got a great deal for you. Um, we've got a wonderful magazine, The Austrian. Um, the title comes from uh, our particular brand of economics. It's called Austrian Economics. There's a long story to that. I'm not going to bore you with. Um, but we have a wonderful print magazine with some excellent commentary. We have a new issue coming out to doors very, very soon. And it's completely free for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you want to sign up and get your copy delivered once every other month, uh, you can find a uh, registration at Mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. Joining us today is a friend of the show, my good buddy, Peter St. Ange, who is a uh, fellow with the Heritage Foundation. He has uh, written a great deal on Mises.org. And uh, Peter, how are you doing this morning? I am great, Phil. Thanks. Always love having you on, and uh, this is a, a you know fun week. Always, uh, always an interesting time when we get uh, get Fed news coming in, and you had an article on your uh, great Substack, which people can find at uh, profsaintonge.com. That's p r o f s t o n g e dot com. Profsaintonge.com, um, where you are uh, talking about um, all of the the, the wishes out there for the Fed to pivot on its tightening policy. Um, there's a, you, know, you, you see Elon Musk complaining about uh, uh, rate hikes on Twitter from time to time. 
Uh, but the the Fed, even though it paused in June, um, it, it was a bullish pause, uh, a hawkish pause um, on, on rate hikes going forward. Um, and so, uh, you know, can you break down your analysis here on what is uh, what, what's the Fed looking at? What is driving their current decisions, and uh, what what should we expect from those moves? Yeah, the most important thing that we've been getting from the Fed recently, and this was reinforced by the inflation numbers that came out uh, two days ago, is that inflation is not going anywhere. It is stuck. Right? The Fed pays attention to so-called core inflation, which excludes food and energy. That's what they read as the real inflation rate. And, you know, even at the height of the inflationary crisis last year, Core was bouncing along around 6% per year, which is about three times what the Fed wants. Uh, and now it's been stuck at 5% for six months now, and that's after 15 rate hikes. So the Fed has thrown the kitchen sink at inflation. It's done everything it can to fight it. Uh, these were actually the most aggressive rate hikes since Paul Volcker in the 1970s, which, of course, caused a a whole series of catastrophic recessions. So the Fed has tried to throw everything out of inflation. It has not worked. What it has done, which every school of economics, including even the Keynesians, understand, is that if you hike rates that aggressively, you're going to crush banks and you're going to crush jobs in the wider economy. So, and, you know, Powell came out and admitted it. He said inflation has not reacted to our rate hikes. And, you know, sort of the subtext here is that that's because rate hikes are not the <laughs> correct medicine in this situation, right? We have inflation because the Fed pumped out $6 trillion. There was a point a couple of years ago where about almost one in three dollars in existence still had wet ink on it, right? And they pushed that out to buy the COVID lockdowns. So the solution to it would have been to cut back on the federal spending, get rid of the deficits, for the Fed to start selling off its bloated portfolio of federal debt, that would have been the correct way. In other words, you, you end the inflation the same way it started. What the Fed did instead is that they didn't give any trouble to federal spending. Nope, nope, they just accept that as you know part of the universe. Instead, they try to crush the private economy so that they can reduce our spending, our jobs, keep the road open for the feds to keep spending trillions. The problem is that that game plan, as sick as it is, right, to sacrifice small businesses and millions of jobs so the feds can keep spending, as sick as that is, it didn't work. Inflation is not going away. It's, it's interesting because, you know, for, I remember for, for the longest time, right, you had a very serious federal uh, Fed officials saying, you know, calling for more inflation, desperate for more inflation. We got to get more inflation in the system. And it definitely seems that there was a bit of hubris there and thinking that, you know, once they, they let that genie out of the bottle, that they can very carefully control this. Um, you know, I think some of that goes back to, you know, the, the relatively low inflation uh, from official numbers, um, given the aggressive measures taken by uh, Bernanke and company during um, uh, you know the 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 Great Recession response, um, you know which Americans paid for the very slow um, um, growth thereafter, and, and there's this whole dynamic where you know we were paying banks not to lend, which had consequences of the real economy and all that sort of fun stuff as well. But but the the arrogance there, where where you know the the dynamic where we we can completely break the rules 
we can do things that were completely unprecedented and then then just kind of reverse back ship. Um, you know, it, it is worth noting that Brunicki's promises in terms of getting the balance sheet back to normalization, things like that. None of those ever happened. We're still not back to normalization levels back from from um, Brunicki's uh, Bernanke's uh, actions back then. Um, but, you know, it, it seems that at the very least Powell relative to some of the other economic thinkers, and this is not meant to be some sort of pra- a glowing praise of Powell, but, but Powell seems to have a little bit more um, uh, modesty at times with the Fed, what the Fed can truly do here, as well as and one of the things I do appreciate is that he really has been at least uh, uh, publicly very laser focused on the seriousness of you know, if, if you lose credibility on the perception that you're fighting inflation, that's where inflation really comes, the, the insidious normalization dynamic there. And and so, you know, while there are, are some out there that have talked about, well, you know, one of the solutions here is to simply raise the Fed's target rate, you know, from, from its historical 2% target inflation to 3% or something like that to kind of make things look normalized, Powell seems more resistant to that than some of the others. Yeah, that's what's I think most terrifying about Powell is that as bad as he is, he is better than any other, you know, reasonable candidate for that job. People like Leo Bernard. I mean, the, these are out and out inflationists. These are the kind of people who would take inflation back up to eight, ten percent. They are unreformed Keynesians, really unreformed Marxists. And right, they're pushing things like raising the speed limit to three percent. That would increase by 50% the amount of inflationary erosion that's, you know, going after savers. Um, that, that's, that's really their goal. And so Powell is the sort of the cleanest <laughs> shirt out of a pile of dirty laundry there. And you hit the nail on the head on the hubris. You know, Bernanke, all through 2008, he kept admitting that all the things they're doing, these are all very experimental. We have no idea if they'll work. I mean, just the irresponsibility of these people. And, you know, it almost reminds you of FDR in the 1930s, where he took a run-of-the-mill stock market crash, a standard boom-bust cycle like the Fed has created dozens of times, and he turned that into really a worldwide depression because he wanted to experiment. He wanted to try stuff, see see if it works. Let's repeal the gold standard and see what happens. You know, these are millions of people's lives at stake, uh, that is not something that you just play around with and experiment. And 2008 really gave them, as you mentioned, a dangerous confidence to think that they can pour trillions out. It's not going to translate to inflation. Everybody has known for centuries that printing up too much money is going to give you inflation. What happened in 2008 was a very unique situation where they printed up all this money and they handed it to the banks and then the banks sat on it. They stuck it in the vault underground. If you sit on money, then sure, that's not going to cause inflation. Uh, It would be like if you literally buried $6 trillion in your backyard, it's not in the economy. Okay, so they misunderstood what happened in 2008 because they're Keynesians. They work with aggregates. They say, ah, the money supply went up. Inflation didn't happen. I have to revise all my coalitions. No, you actually have to dig in and understand what precisely happened. And in 2008... All that fresh money got stuck in the bank vaults. They kept it. They didn't lend it out. What happened during COVID is the way that all that fresh money was printed, it was intense. I mean, it was, it was deposited into everybody's account. People spent it. Uh, the PPP loans, for example, right? So that did go into circulation. That always causes inflation. These guys, you know, because of 2008, they started to feel like maybe 
maybe we're in a new world. Maybe this time is different. And that's what gave them the hubris now to run this massive experiment that it looks like it's going to end in a 1970s story. If they keep going, it could end in a 1930s story. Right. And, uh, and I mean, even, you know, what I, one of the things I think is always entertaining is that while you have, you know, very, uh, very loud um, uh, members of, of Congress, particularly from the left, that love to, to uh, publicly attack the banks in front of cameras while, you know, largely being very happy to take their campaign cash during election season, um, you know, one of the dynamics there is that one of the reasons why the banks were so content on sitting <laughs> on all that cash is that we were paying them oh, yeah. for their excess interest yep. on, on the on reserves beyond what the Fed was acquiring them. So it was it was essentially a direct subsidization by the Treasury to the banks that had that privilege. And uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's it's funny how, uh, how how that doesn't get nearly as you know what's what's controversial now. It, what 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 uh, Elizabeth Warren's really concerned about. You know, is is uh, trying to to uh, uh, deal with inflation, you know, from the Fed rather than you know the, the direct uh, subsidization of the banks from from that excess interest rate uh, environment there, and and the, the the consequences down to real life America. You know, you you mentioned uh, Volcker's uh, actions during the '70s earlier, but it, it is worth noting just for for reference that at least you know, during during the the craziness of '70s levels inflation. Um, you know, CD levels for average Joes, you know, wanting to to try to get a safe return from a traditional bank, you know, always outpaced inflation um, a, a, a decent amount to, to be viable here. You know, I, I, it's, it's amusing to see all these these new um, uh, bank uh, uh, signs pop up, you know, advertising. Oh, we've got great new deals on CDs. You can get a four point five percent return on, on a three year CD. And it's like when inflation's four percent. Um, that that return really isn't quite uh, quite quite what it's being uh, being sold as there, and so you know, the, the ability for average Americans to try to weather this, you know, it, it was those that were invested in speculative assets that were the biggest winners of the Obama economy, um, but you know, average Joes, you know, people that are working paycheck to paycheck, I mean, they're the ones that are really being uh, put to the screws here, uh, you know, by this financial financialized world. Yeah, and that's what the Fed's been engineering for generations now. You know, Americans uh, don't save anymore. You see these articles saying, oh, it's a shame. Everybody lives for today. Nobody thinks about the future. Well, no, the Fed did that. The Fed causes via financial repression, it's called, when they hold rates too low so that savers lose money, uh, inflation-adjusted. The Fed did that on purpose. They subsidized borrowing. The overwhelming um, amount of borrowing in the economy goes to rich people. Actually, the overwhelming amount goes to the federal government, and then number two is rich, is, uh, rich people. So the Fed drains savers, transfers assets from middle class and poor to the rich and to the federal government. And, you know, of course, then people look at it, they look at the results, and they say, ah, oh, look at how horrible the free market is or capitalism. No, that's not capitalism. <laughs> that is the Federal Reserve. And, you know, you mentioned earlier on the excess reserves uh, and the reverse repos are also part of that. Reverse repos are just where hedge funds basically treat the Fed as a bank. They deposit money in there. And those two things together, they are bigger than the amount of currency in circulation. That's basically trillions of dollars that are currently on ice so that they don't leak out into inflation. The thing is that the Fed is paying about $285 billion of interest to all these characters, Wall Street and hedge funds, in order to keep that money on ice, $285 billion is actually more than the profits of the entire financial system. So our Wall Street is not living on profits. They're living on freshly printed money from the Fed in order to 
put a couple trillion dollars on ice that the Fed already printed up, we have this insane system now. It's like a self-licking ice cream cone where you have just mind-boggling amounts of money going to pay Wall Street, and then they channel it back, and it goes back and forth, and we're all sitting here suffering the consequences of it in the form of economy-crushing rate hikes. And, and of course, you know, when we think about the financial environment, you know, that there is definitely a, a, a haves and have nots, even within institutions. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk and, and it, Powell was, was talking about how we were still waiting to see the lagging effects of monetary tightening here. Um, you know, you mentioned at the end of your article that um, we should be expecting a lot more bankruptcies, layoffs, failed banks and even failed pensions. Um, you know, the, the headlines a couple months ago about regional banks feeling the, the pressure there, um, you know, we, we, it seems to be, you know, neck, if we're, we're a few news cycles away from that, some people might might be forgetting that. But can you talk a little bit about how the, the, the non-Wall Street banks, um, you know, they're, they're still left in a very dangerous situation right now. I know it particularly with the concerns over commercial real estate, um, which which has a, a lot of exposure within these regional banks. Um, you know, where, where, where are some of the, the pressure points that we should be expecting going forward? as the consequences of these tightenings kind of play out more visibly in the next uh, next few months? Yeah, commercial real estate is a huge uh, pain point, and we could see a lot more bank stress coming out of that. Regional banks traditionally dominate real estate lending because they, lo- you know, they know the, mar- the, uh, the local markets. And so right now, commercial real estate is plunging. Residential is going down, uh, but commercial is going down a lot harder, partly because the cities uh, are all in trouble. And that hits the regional banks. Now, we've already had a couple of major regional banks that are getting bought up by the Wall Street majors. Not only does that give us an oligopoly in banking, it fundamentally transforms our economy because for centuries, you know, the way banking systems work is that regional banks tend to lend more of their money locally. The money center banks like Wall Street or London or places like that they don't lend locally, okay? They're not, they're not, you know, funding coffee shops in London. They are shipping that money overseas or they're shipping it to multinationals. And so as our banking system continues concentrating, right, as Wall Street banks continue hoovering up these distressed regional banks, we can expect more and more of the loans to keep getting siphoned out of small business, out of, you know, consumer loans and sort of individuals and going more towards either multinationals or simply being shipped overseas where, you know, the interest rates tend to be better because the risks are higher, right? If you're lending money to Argentina, you're going to make a higher percent on your money. And the U.S. government over really our entire life has stood ready to bail out any of those debts that go bad. Uh, for a while there, you know, you had the tequila crisis and the, the vodka crisis and the rum crisis, and they were like playing a game, talking about all the different countries where Citibank and J.P. Morgan, their sovereign loans to basket case countries like Mexico or Argentina get bailed out every single time. Right? So as the regionals fail and the money goes to those Wall Street centers, you get an economy where American savings are being siphoned, they're shipped overseas into these failing countries. And hey, we'll, we'll continue this conversation on the other side of the break here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money on this Thursday morning here in Tampa, Florida on Money Talk 1010. And if you enjoy the content of this show, I've got a deal for you. Uh, economic literacy, better 
being able to better understand uh, the, the real, uh, the proper way of understanding the economy out there in spite of all the, all the narratives that you get from traditional outlets. It getting, uh, having you know more, having, uh, if you have a, a, a student prepared to go off to college or maybe in college right now, um, having that economic lens is a great way of being able to see through a lot of the uh, very bad uh, ideas out there in terms of politics, economics, and everything in between. Um, if you use the, uh, the link, mises.org slash good, G-O-O-D, as in good money, um, it'll take you to a great deal that we have for Money Talk 1010 listeners. You can get a $5 bundle for two books. One is How to Think About the Economy, a new book uh, by Dr. Per Byland of Oklahoma State University, a fantastic short read on just kind of developing that, that core economic lens. And then another classic, Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money, which looks at the history of the dollar, the history of the Fed, um, the history of money itself as a, uh, a very important innovation in, in mankind. I can't recommend these two books highly enough. $5, two books. Uh, and if you use the promo code good money, no space, one word, good money, shipping and handling is included. So $5, two books, get it today at Mises.org slash good. Someone who very much understands what government has done to our money and more importantly, what government wants to do with our money in the future is Peter St. Ange, a fellow at the Heritage Foundation and someone who is just cranking out the content these days. Um, if you are on Twitter, you must follow uh, Peter at Prof St. Ange. Um, that's uh, P R O F S T O N G E O N G E. Um, he is cranking out. Uh, he's got a podcast out there. He's doing short form video content. Um, you know, uh, uh, Elon Musk is a fan of his content out there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, so please check out his Twitter page. One of my favorites on that fine site and he has just been on all sorts of of outlets right now really blowing it up and so we are very glad to have him here on good money this morning and peter i know one of the topics that um, um you have been you know, really one of the, the leading uh, uh warriors in dc on right now is the specter of central bank digital currency um, you know, which, you know, when we talked about in the last segment on all of the issues that the Fed is having, trying to navigate with the predictable consequences of their past actions, one of the way that governments have historically dealt with these pressures has been to, you know, engage in confiscation and engage in a form of monetary default, such as when, you know, we broke our connection to gold, uh, you know, both in for domestic handlers in the 30s and then international holders in the 1970s. And so trying to play new games with the dollar um, is, is a common uh, dynamic within Washington's political response to their misdeeds. And, you know, I'm, I've been very pleased to see the mainstream traction out there on recognizing that central bank digital currencies are a, a big major threat in a variety of ways. And I know that um, there has been some attempt with NDC to try to restrain some of this sort of stuff. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of those battles that are going on? And I know there's, there's been some competing Republican proposals on dealing with this. Um, you were in the Hill recently identifying one of the major problems 
with one of the Republican approaches there. Um, again, giving way too much trust to the very sort of authorities that are looking to weaponize this against us. Can you just, uh, for, for our audience, uh, update us on what is going on within these, uh, these policy debates? Definitely. So central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, they would replace the dollar with a kind of government crypto token. So rather than having cash, you would have an entry on a basically a database at the Fed. And they would be able to see everything you spend. They would be able to control it. They'd be able to make sure you, you know, don't buy uh, things you're not allowed to buy. Second Amendment related goods, for example, or perhaps um, they would force you to eat the bugs. Uh, more dangerously, um, and, uh, you know, they could force you to stay into a failing bank. Uh, they could force you to spend money to stimulate the economy by the next election because maybe Joe Biden will need the help. So they are catastrophic. They would give push-button central planning uh, control over every aspect of your life. And we've already seen that kind of control be weaponized, for example, uh, in Canada. These things are grotesquely unpopular. Nobody anywhere in the world wants these things. Uh, they tried to push them in Nigeria. It led to riots. China is, of course, the leading pusher of CBDCs. Obviously, they love surveillance tech. In the U.S., they poll something like 20% of people want this. 80% don't want it. So you would think in a democracy that would mean it's dead in the water, but that's not how Washington works. They don't really care what we think. And so there's been this massive push across Washington. Unfortunately, uh, some of the pushes have actually come from Republicans. Uh, I hope that they're just unaware of the danger. Um, now, there are some very good Republican bills. For example, Mike Lee out of Utah, who's always good, uh, Alex Mooney, uh, in the House, he's out of West Virginia, and they've been pushing to ban all sorts or all forms of CBDCs, including CBDC pilots. Right? The Fed right now is running CBDC pilots without authorization. The Fed can do that, by the way, because they're self-funding. They print their own budget, so they're independent of Congress. Murray Rothbard actually said there's less oversight of the Fed than the CIA, so they kind of run their they kind of run the country on their own. So at any rate, those kinds of bills are excellent. It's what you expect from the GOP. They're banning CBDCs. Unfortunately, we have this other kind of bill circulating, which at the moment, the way it reads, it would forbid CBDCs to individuals. In other words, where you know individual Americans hold a bank account at the Fed, it would uh, prevent that. But it would allow so-called intermediated or indirect coins, where it's either going through a bank or it's going through some financial contractor. That is very dangerous because that kind of a bill the Democrats will get on board with. The Democrats have universally been very excited about the prospect of the CBDC. They love control. Uh, they may want to use it to try to push a UBI, for example, next time we have a recession. So that's a very dangerous bill. That is the one that we at Heritage and in, in, indeed a coalition of DC think tanks, Freedom Works, Club for Growth, we've been fighting that very, very hard to make sure that that's revised so that it bans all CBDCs and ideally that it would ban CBDC pilots. We do not want the Fed even piloting CBDCs for the same reason that we don't want, uh, you know, the U.S. government piloting mass FEMA internment camps. These are capabilities that the U.S. government should not have, even if it's built with a contractor. Yeah, no, it's, it's like the, the idea of, of you know, financing bioweapons and uh... <laughs> And Chinese labs, like you know, so there's a exactly. good, very good possibility right. that this might be uh, may be used against us in the future. Um, but I, 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 maybe one of the reasons why uh, yeah. you know it, 
we, we, CBC's only look good polling wise uh, relative to the average American's view of Congress as a whole. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is. Yeah. You know, th- 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 this is the the underlying. You know, to, to me, you know, given given the the political craziness out there. If if you are concerned about the weaponization of institutions or anything like that, you owe it to yourself to be following the the money side of things because it seems to me that on on you know, ultimately this this you know populist versus establishment, however you want whatever terms that you're comfortable with, the ultimate battle ultimately comes down to money, the the corporate control, the, the yeah. corporate consolidation of of you know the, the private economy has been directly financed by what the fed has done and so ultimately if the goal is to rein in drain the swamp whatever slogan you want money is the battlefield there and and i'm, I'm glad to see that you know maybe it's it's you know the, the the there's finally some recognition of this being a a mainstream topic because the fed so deliberately over a decade over decades, you can go back to Alan Greenspan and the rise of Fed speak and the way that they would use language, right? You know, the entire goal that the Federal Reserve has had for a very long time was to try to convince both average people and lawmakers that money is such a technical sort of specialized issue that you normal people shouldn't even try to understand it. Where at the end of the day, it's really right, not that complicated. And, and that's mm-hmm. uh, trust, trust the science. They'll, they'll never go wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. They want to keep control of it. And you know, people underestimate how much power the money has. So if you take, you know, the whole woke corporation thing, with these companies, you know, pushing out the left-wing political agendas, historically, most Fortune 500 CEOs voted Republican. Okay, about 60, 70% would vote for Republicans. And yet, over the past couple of years, we have seen approximately zero Fortune 500 CEOs speak out against the woke agenda. They are Republicans. Many of them probably voted for Trump. Why are they not speaking out? And the answer is because of the money. Who controls the money controls the world. You've got a couple of um, massive Wall Street-based money managers like BlackRock. They both control financing. So if money can go to companies, they also control It's called uh, proxy voting, where shareholder resolutions get voted on. And there are a very, very small number of companies who control those votes. They can essentially tell companies what to do. So Exxon, it was just a year or two ago, they approved a resolution to cut down on fossil fuels. This is Exxon. That is insane if their goal is to protect Exxon shareholders, which is their legal duty. That's their fiduciary duty to protect shareholders. Instead, they're pushing these or uh, climate and left-wing policies. Why are they doing such crazy things? Why does Bud Light continue doing what it's doing? It is the money. It is an existential question for their company because the money can choke them off. So people really, to understand what's happening in the world, people have to understand the source. Where is this all coming from? It is coming from control of the money. Uh, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, you, know, you, you see on the right, um, you know, kind of a rising, you know, they, they, they want to blame trade. They want to blame um, you know, I, I saw there was a new proposal like, oh, well, you know, the, the right wing response to, to you know, domestic policy is to increase, put it on a, a 10 percent, uh, you know, across the board global tariff. And it's like, well, you see, you, you want to put a 10 percent tariff on foreign goods at a time of, of very high inflation rates. Yeah, you're really looking out for the common man there, guy. Um, you know, if, if you don't understand the money, your, your attempt to try to fix these sort of pro- the, the symptoms of the money become very, very dangerous. Yeah, our side gets gaslighted because, you know, so if you take trade, for example, 
the left has put this massive regulatory apparatus on where it is almost impossible to run a business. You have got to be sick in the head to start a manufacturing, like a factory in Wisconsin, because it is so much red tape that you have to dig through. By we, we, are, we are facing a hard break, Peter, but uh, always glad to have you on the show. We'll have you again in the future. Again, you can find more um, from Dr. Sainange at on Twitter, Prof Sainange. And uh, thank you for, for being on the show today. This is uh, a good money. Stay tuned on the, on the other side of the break where we close out today's show here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to the final segment here on Good Money with Tho Bishop. I am the aforementioned Tho Bishop, content manager at the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. Is where you can find more content like you find on this show. We have a great front page right now at Mises.org, uh, diving into um, some more issues on Fed and inflation. Um, we've got some, some articles on uh, rent control. Um, which I think is going to be an increasingly uh, popular issue, um, particularly in, in blue states going forward. Um, we have some interesting international perspectives, um, uh, in, in the, the consequences of inflation within the global debt markets, all sorts of great things, as well as a little bit of history, um, which we always try to mix in as well, because if you do not understand history, it's very it's far easier to be bamboozled in current narratives. And that's one of the things I think is really interesting within the the mainstream ways that economics is taught is that you have people that can get a PhD in history without any classes in economic history, um, which I think is a very dangerous thing trying to, uh, if, you, if your only focus is statistical modeling, you're going to miss a whole lot of what the economics discipline should be about. Um, I wanted to end the show with a, a um, I guess, a, a amusing in a dark sense um, story I saw earlier this week. Um, but, I, but I think it does a great job of illustrating one of the other dynamics there in the, the global financial landscape, which is uh, ESG ratings and how they can be gamed. Um, ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. Um, these are ratings that help influence um, the investment decisions of large institutional investors and the like, BlackRock and, and all sorts of fine companies like that. Um, but did you know that uh, in recent, uh, a, a, a recent ESG report, um, tobacco companies are crushing it. Uh, in fact, they are dominating uh, Tesla, which if you are one to think that uh, one of the greatest environmental threats of the day is fossil fuels and the like, and, and you know, obviously Tesla um, is the, the giant in the arena when it comes to electric cars, even still today. They just had a, a major agreement with other traditional car companies on the uses of their, um, their charging capabilities for their electric vehicles um, and the like. Uh, Tesla scored a 37 on a 100-point scale within uh, a major ESG report. Uh, Philip Morris, though, has a, a score of 84. So how does this happen? When you think about... Um, you know, tobacco as a product, right? You know, not, not usually a, a product that, is, that gets a lot of, of love out there from the, the regulatory regime, um, but it's, it's very simple. Uh, they, they, they have become very, very aggressive in promoting uh, female-owned businesses, in particular female holdings in agriculture. And so because of uh, these diversity sort of rankings within the various aspects of cigarette production, uh, 
their their ESG ratings are going through the roof. Um, you know, they have they've taken a, a very deliberate stand on, um, you know, they, 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 they wrap themselves in, in terms of uh, empowering female tobacco farmers, um, you know, it, particularly abroad, um, a lot of investment within African markets and the like. And so, again, it's it is, um, you know, just trying to think of what Don Draper uh, would, would, would think about that in the modern age. But um, the reason all this matters, though, is that it, it kind of goes into the way that these these ratings ultimately it's not about the product that a firm puts out on the market uh, it's about the way that they check the desired boxes of of patronage essentially uh that help these companies obtain large-scale capital uh, as peter mentioned in the previous segment that uh, you know the dynamics of woke capital and and all of the the headlines we've seen with target and and bud light and the like um there was a a very interesting article this week on the blaze by Aaron mcintyre um whose uh, content I'm a, I'm a big fan of and he made the made the important point out there that ultimately when you have this larger financialized fueled um kind of corporate governing regime that while um, in the short term, consumer rebellions and the Bud Light one is, is one of the more interesting ones where Modelo now is America's leading beer company um, as, as Bud Light sales continue to crash. Ultimately, these large financial firms will continue to do things that consumers do not like because ultimately they are far more afraid of the institutional powers at play rather than the views of their consumers. They are willing to take a hit on the buying side of their products at the expense of not losing out to the ability to access certain pools of capital that allow them to grow and keep up their, uh, you know, keep up their business on that side of things. And so you know, when we think about the politicalization of the economy, um, it's not simply what the Fed does. It's not simply what the Treasury does. It's not simply what Congress does. But it's all these different intermediaries out there. And so, um, you know, no, no industry has, has navigated, has, has, has seen the, the full force of Washington quite like tobacco companies, and they are responding appropriately. So, uh, you know, at least you know, next time you, if you, anyone out there buying a pack of cigarettes, you can be comfortable that it's a very diverse brand. Um, so that's what I'm going to leave you with here on Good Money. We'll see you next Thursday here on Money Talk 1010. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.